So y'all turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Romans 10, verse 1, and we're also going to look at Luke 15, 3 through 10. So if you're really uh, got good dexterity and Bible knowledge, you can have both of those ready to go. If not, it's going to be on the screen. And as you're turning there, I need to ask you a question, and you don't need to raise your hand. I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but just a question to ponder, because the question is, is anybody here perfect? I mean, anybody here has reached that state of moral and ethical and intellectual perfection where you, you know everything there is to know, um, you've found perfect joy, perfect peace every day of your life, you are in a good place, you love everyone in the world with a perfect love, you never hold anything against them, you forgive them immediately for their slights, and in fact, you are so good that every day you exist on this earth, you make the world a better place just by your mere existence. Now, if that's you, if I just described you, I have to give you an apology because I've got nothing for you today. I really don't. I mean, nothing I'm going to say is going to help you in any way. I really don't know what it's like to be you, so I can't really help you. But for the rest of you who are like me, and you say, no, I've still got a long way to go. There's a lot of areas of my life that I wish I could change. And when I forget the areas of my life that I wish I could change, I talk to the people who know me, and they remind me of ways that I should change. So if you're like me and you're in that state of affairs, let me just say, I've only found and I'm only aware of one way to make positive change in your life that is absolutely foolproof, that makes change that is absolutely everlasting, and it's not a diet plan, and it's not a workout plan, and it's not a financial strategy or anything like that. It's not a class you can take. It's encountering the living God. Because if you read the Bible, here's what's true in Scripture. Every time somebody comes into contact with God face-to-face, they walk away different. They never, they never stay the same. They always change in some positive way. And so that's the whole reason why we are embarking on this journey this year of all in. We, we're challenging our church in these four different ways because it is our speculation, and I think it's a safe guess, that none of our people, including us, have ever done all four of these things in one year. Never read the entire Bible all at once. Never, never uh, prayed for the lost uh, in a concerted daily way. Never, never engaged in missions in a hands-on way. Never committed to generosity in a way that is, that is sacrificial, that is greater than we've ever done. And if we focus on those four areas, we're going to be seeking after God. We're going to be surrendering to Him in a way we never have before. And I think that's going to change every single person. And that's going to change our church. And when a church this size changes, it makes an impact on our community. And it's going to make an impact on families and on neighborhoods and on schools and on offices and, and workplaces. And I just think it can be amazing what God can do. So last week we talked about reading through the whole Bible. And some of you have started on that plan. And you've already hit some parts that you find confusing. And that's okay. Remember what I said last week. It is good to wrestle with the uncertainties in the Scriptures and, and, and really sit down and ask God, Lord, what does this mean? I don't understand this. And to talk it over with people in your life group. That's why you have a life group, right? Give me a call. Send me an email or, or somebody else on staff. I've already had several emails this week. What is up with this? And that's good. I don't know that my answers helped, but it helped for us to wrestle with those things together. Now, if you've fallen behind, if you've started and you've fallen behind, take heart because there's only 25 readings per month, so you've got time to catch up. If you haven't started reading the Bible yet and you want to start, pick up a reading plan out in the atrium at the all-in table, 
download it off of our website if you want to. You can even find a version of it on the Uversion app on your smartphone. If you need help with that, let me know. But don't start at the beginning and try to catch up because you'll already be putting a, too big a burden on yourself. Start with today's reading. Start with today and read out of Matthew 5 and out of Genesis 31 and, and Psalm 13 and, uh, and Acts chapter 8. Just keep up with us. And we'll get through this together. It's going to be a wonderful year. But today I want to talk to you about that second challenge. You know, in, in Robert's song, he talked about how God so loved the world that he sent, he sent his only begotten son. And we all know people who haven't found that knowledge of him yet. We're going to start with Romans 1. And, and the context here, those of you who come uh, to my young adult Bible study on Sunday nights at my house, or if you're, on, if you're with us on Wednesday nights, um, in, in, the, in Harrington Hall. We've been going through Romans together and we, we've been recently through this very passage, this very chapter. And Romans 9 through 11, like I told you on those nights, if you're with us, that's the hardest part of Romans for us 21st century Gentile people because Paul is dealing with something very, very personal for him. And that is the question of how could my people, the Jewish people, how could they turn away from our Messiah? You know, if you're a Jew like Paul in the first century, you and your forefathers have been praying for God to send a, a hero, a deliverer for centuries and centuries, and then he shows up, and most of the nation says, well, we don't want them, we don't want it that way. That's not the Messiah we were looking for. And so here's Paul, who on one hand understands why they rejected him, because if you remember, Paul didn't always go by the Apostle Paul. He used to be known as Saul of Tarsus, this very, very zealous young man, uh, very uh, passionate about his beliefs as a Jew and his adherence to the Torah, a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of the Jewish faith. I mean, it was his daily calling, his daily passion was making sure he followed every single command in the Scriptures and making sure you did too as his fellow Jewish neighbor. And he, as a Pharisee, knew that the men he followed and trusted, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't trust Jesus. They didn't believe in him because he was followed by tax collectors and sinners. And he said things that were outlandish. And he made claims about himself that couldn't possibly be true. And worst of all, he got crucified. And didn't, didn't it say in Deuteronomy that cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree? Well, that means that Jesus was cursed by God. And how could, be, how could God's Messiah be cursed by God? And so Paul became enraged whenever he would hear someone say, Jesus is Lord or, or Jesus is the Christ. He was so enraged it became his life's passion to wipe out the belief we call Christianity from the face of the earth. And he arrested many. He split up families. He tore apart churches. He led to the deaths of some. And it was on his way to do more of that when he met Jesus and everything changed. Everything changed for Paul when he met Jesus face to face in that vision on the road to Damascus. And from then on, his passion changed. He was just as zealous. He was just as motivated. But now his motivation was, people need to hear about this Jesus. Not just my fellow Jews, but people all over the world. Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. Anybody here a Gentile? Any Gentiles in the room? Yeah, we ought to thank God for Paul. Because he was the first one to take the message of salvation to our people. And so Paul spent most of his life out there among, among sinners like us, Gentiles like us, distant from his homeland, the land of Israel, but his heart was still there with his people, just like ours would be. And so with that as context, this one verse speaks volumes. He says in Romans 10, 1, 
Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Even though Paul couldn't be there to witness to his fellow Jews, even though he couldn't be there to plant churches in Israel, he was praying every day, Lord, save them. Lord, bring them to yourself. Now, I, I, need, to, I need to pause and just acknowledge that if Paul were alive today and he were saying these kinds of things today, he would get a backlash He would hear from our culture, he would hear people say, listen, you are fine believing what you want to believe about Jesus. You have every right to believe that, practice your religion in the privacy of your home or behind the doors of a church, but don't go trying to spread that religion elsewhere. I mean, leave your fellow Jews alone. They already have a religion of their own. They already have beliefs. Why are you stirring up trouble by constantly trying to bring them in? Why are you wasting your prayers when they are happy as they are? He would even get backlash from within the church, probably not as loudly. I don't think any of us would say this in a very loud or obnoxious way, but I think he'd get some subtle pressure that would say, hey, Paul, I mean, there's people already in the family, right? I mean, we're already in the household of God. Why don't you pay attention to us? You're a talented man. You're an eloquent man. Why don't you, why don't you pastor us instead of spending all your time out there with people who don't even want you? I think Paul's response would be, Listen, folks, I'm doing what Jesus told us to do. And that's where we get to that second scripture, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, verse 3. The context here is Jesus is answering the, the, the criticisms of people like Saul used to be. In fact, we don't know this, but Saul may have even been in the crowd because it says Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And they were muttering against him. You ever notice you can never mutter positively? They were muttering to to Paul and they were saying, uh, or not to Paul, to Jesus. They were saying, how come you spend all your time around tax collectors and sinners? How come you spend all your time around people who don't deserve the love of God? And he told these two stories, which we probably know. Verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now let's just be honest, only Jesus could get away with calling God or, or with equating God to a math challenge shepherd and a ditzy housewife. But that's what Jesus just did. And his point is that just like those two fictional characters, God cares about what he has lost more than what he already has. In fact, he cares about what he has lost so much, it is his constant preoccupation. God is passionate about those who are not part of his family yet but should be. He is passionate about anyone who is not yet within his kingdom. There's an old, old English poem 
old enough that it's in the public domain. You don't have to buy a book. You can look it up online. The title is The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. And the poet compares God to a bloodhound who is seeking and won't stop, who is seeking what he is seeking to find. And that's us, chasing and chasing and chasing. You know what the word relentless means? It means it will not relent. It's mean, it means something that refuses to quit. There's a stubbornness there. There's a hard-headedness there, but it's a holy hard-headedness. It's, I am not going to stop chasing you. I will chase you to the very gates of hell itself. And if you choose to spend eternity apart from me, you can because I will not force you to come into my kingdom. But if you choose to spend eternity apart from me, you'll do it over my dead body. And that is exactly the way Jesus lived. And that is exactly the way Jesus died. When someone wanted to know who Jesus was and what he was about, he said these words in Luke 19. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I know it's very, very popular in culture today, both inside and outside the church, to say, well, Jesus was a wonderful teacher, and he was. But we didn't need a teacher. And others will say, well, Jesus was a great example. If you would just live like Jesus, then the world would be a better place. Absolutely. Who can live like Jesus? Not me. If all he was was an example or a teacher, we're lost. And others say, well, he came to bring a new religion into the world. No, he didn't. He came to bring us salvation. He came to bring us rescue. That's the way he lived. That's the way he died. So when Paul says, my heart's desire and my prayers are for the salvation of my fellow Israelites, he is, he is speaking the heart of God. And that's why, and that's why we're challenging everybody in this room to pray daily for people who are lost. And I know you say, well, I don't know who's lost and who's saved. I don't either. That's above our pay grade. But you know, you know when people who are close to you are not where they ought to be. And guess what? If you pray for somebody who's already in the family of God and you're praying for their salvation, God knows how to filter those prayers. I'm pretty sure He's not going to get confused. So let me, let me just cover a couple of questions and then we're done. The first question is, what actually happens when we pray for the lost? Second, prayer is, uh, second question is, how do we pray for the lost? So the first question first, what actually happens when we pray for those who are outside the family of faith? Because there's a couple of things that don't happen. Just need to clear up a couple of misconceptions. When you pray for a lost person, you are not giving God new information and you are not reminding him of something he has forgotten. God is not sitting up there in heaven preoccupied with something else, watching the news or whatever, and then all of a sudden you, he hears your prayer and says, oh yeah, I forgot about that guy. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I guess I'll pay attention to him now. Your prayers do not change God's activity or behavior or attitude in any way. Secondly, when we pray for the lost, God does not force them to be saved. God does not grab them by the ear and drag them into a church and kick them in the rear until they roll to the front and they say, I guess I better repent. Some people need that, but God is not that kind of God. God does not brainwash people until they become mind-altered zombies for Jesus, okay? Nobody's going to come to Christ that way. That's not how God uh, operates. Instead, here's what I believe God does when we pray for the lost. Two things happen. Number one, he chooses to do his saving work in response to our prayers. I don't know why God works that way, except to say that he loves us, and he wants us to be part of his work, and he knows what joy it is. But he chooses, 
He chooses to do, as often as possible, He chooses to do His saving work in response to our prayers. So here's a story I read a couple of weeks ago in Christianity Today. It's about a man named Heath Adams. Heath, when he was a junior high student, so 12, 13 years old, he became very interested in the occult. And what Heath Adams found out was that if you become interested in the occult, if you're interested in demonic things, you can find those things. They will be found by you. And Heath Adams, as a very young man, 13, 12, 13 years old, witnessed things that most of us only see in horror movies if we see them there. He saw things levitate. He saw things inanimate objects move. He, he heard voices. In the midst of this, he started uh, experimenting with drugs, with uh, hallucinogens. He became very quickly addicted, not surprisingly, and was just uh, in a miserable state. As a, as a teenager, this boy was as lost as lost can be. There was a girl in his class, a Christian girl who felt burdened for him. She befriended Heath Adams. She began to be kind to him. She's the only person that really was. She prayed for him daily. She just believed that God had given her a responsibility for this boy. Now, life took them in separate directions. They went to different high schools. They lost contact, but she kept on praying. One day in high school, uh, Heath was in physics class. He was high, as usual. His, his partner in, in a lab experiment could tell that he was high, and he said, listen, you need to come to church with me. It's Wednesday. We have church on Wednesday night. Why don't you come with me tonight? And so he did. I mean, why not? He didn't get anything out of it, really, but that night in his bedroom as he lay there um, sober and wanting another hit but not having anything, he lay there and suddenly felt this strange sensation. He felt the presence of God just enfold him in love. He just felt God is real. God loves me. God has a plan for me. And he decided then, well, I need to go back to church. So the next Sunday comes around, and get this, y'all. He goes to church on the worst possible night that anybody, especially a lost person, could go to church. Because what had happened, and I've never experienced this in any church, and I hope never to in any church, but what had happened was two families were being thrown out of the church that night. Two families had made some kind of threat toward the pastor and his family. There was big conflict, and they were, gonna, they were having a congregational discussion. What should be done? They were going to vote to ask these two families to leave. The police were there. They had called them just in case things got violent. I mean, yeah, churches are full of sinners. These things happen, right? And, and you would think that someone like a, a lost person would be like, I'm out of here. But Heath actually said, you know, this is pretty much what I'm used to in life. I'm used to dysfunction. I feel pretty comfortable here. In fact, he could, he could recognize most of the cops because they'd busted him at one time or another. So he just felt right at home. And at the end of that, you can't call it a worship service, whatever that congregational meeting was, uh, the, the physics lab partner's dad gets up to the microphone, and, and I'm, I guess he just must have figured somebody needs to say something spiritual. And he said, if there's anybody here tonight who doesn't know Jesus that would like to come to know Jesus, the altar is open. And I'm sure everyone there said, are you kidding me? But Heath Adams got up and walked to the front and gave his heart to Christ. And the next week, he gets a letter in the mail, and it's from that young woman, that girl that he knew in junior high. And she said, you've been on my mind. I've been praying for you. I hope you're doing well. They connected. Eventually, they got married and he is now the chief of staff of a Christian relief organization. Now, the point of the story is not if you pray for a lost person, you'll marry them, okay? That would, that would be a problem for us married folks. No, 
the point of the story is this. Would God have saved Heath Adams from his sins if that girl had never prayed? Absolutely. God does not need us to tell him what to do. But because she prayed, she became a part of his work. And even if they hadn't reconnected, even if they hadn't gotten married, she would have had the satisfaction of knowing my prayers contributed to his salvation. I was a part of something God did, something eternity changing. Second thing we know happens when we pray. Our prayers may not change God, but they change us. Our prayers change us as you pray for other people. This is the power of intercessory prayer. Not only does it move God to action, not only, not, not only does He move in response to our prayers, but it changes us. I don't know about you, but I'm very tempted when I pray to pray about the things that matter most to me and forget everything else. To pray about my health problems and my financial issues and the things I'm worried about and the people in my life who I'm concerned about, my wife, my children, uh, my good friends, this church, all that's great. But God wants me to expand that. God wants me to pray for people who I ordinarily wouldn't think about. The more people we pray for, the more it changes us. I think there's a reason why Jesus commanded us to pray for our enemies. I think Jesus understood more about human psychology than maybe we give him credit for. And he knew that if you pray for someone whose guts you despise, pretty soon you're not going to hate them anymore. Because you can't pray for someone and go on hating them. You start to identify with them. You start to care about them. You start to root for them. Like that young woman in Heath Adams' life, when you pray for them, you start to think about things you can do to help them. You become part of their life. It changes you. And the more you take your mind off yourself and the more you put it onto other people, the more like God you're becoming. And that's the whole point. So that's what happens when we pray for the lost. God moves and we change. Now how do we pray for them? Listen, I'm not here to make it complicated. I'm not saying there's a wrong way to pray for lost people. But I, I want to share with you a method that has helped me immensely that has changed my life, and I hope it will help you. So this is called Concentric Circles of Concern. It's based on a book by that title, uh, written by a guy named Oscar Thompson. Oscar Thompson was actually born not far from me. We've never met. He's in heaven now. Um, but uh, he taught at Southwestern Seminary. And in the 70s, when uh, he was on that campus, he was a professor of evangelism, a friend who was a pastor said, come out to my church, I need you to teach our, our people about evangelism, how to share their faith. And he was on his way there, and as he was driving, he was thinking about how, at least, you know, back in the 70s, it was real, real popular within churches to do these big evangelism trainings. Churches would do that probably once a year at least. And almost every one of those trainings was based on the idea that, hey, you're going to meet somebody and they're going to be lost, and you, want to, you may not see them again. You may only have 10 minutes with them. Here's how you share the gospel with that person. You may be riding next to somebody on an airplane or in a bus. You want to make sure they hear the gospel before you get to your destination. That's the whole idea. That was, that was what evangelism training was based on. You're going door to door. You're, you're knocking on doors, and you're meeting strangers, and you're telling them this presentation. How do you do it? And Thompson thought, you know, that's great, but what about all the people we already know? Who's teaching us? Who's training us on how to reach them? And so he came up with this idea of, of seven concentric circles that I'm going to lead you through in just a moment. But after he taught it at the church and it made a real impact, he brought it back to the campus. He began to teach it to his classes. And some of the students didn't like it. This one guy said, Dr. Thompson, I, I have to tell you, 
I came to seminary because I feel called to go into missions. I feel called to go to the ends of the world and tell people about Jesus who've never heard it before. But you're telling me that my dad is my responsibility, and I don't want to pray for my dad. My dad walked out on me when I was a little boy. I haven't seen him or heard from him. He hasn't given us any, any uh, child support. I mean, he is nothing to me. I don't want to pray for him. I don't care what happens to his soul. Whatever he gets, he deserves. And yet, the young man began to do what his professor said. He began to pray for his dad. Halfway through the semester, true story, halfway through the semester, he raises his hand at the beginning of class and he says, I have to tell you, Dr. Thompson, it took a lot of work. I had to call a lot of distant relatives, but I've I've managed to track down my father. And last night I called him, and we haven't talked since I was a little boy. And I called him, and, and he, said, he told me, you know, it's funny that you called. It's funny that you're in seminary because I just gave my life to Jesus last week. And he said, we're, we're, we're going to find a way to get together and, and reconnect soon. A couple of years later, Oscar Thompson is at the Southwestern Seminary graduation ceremony, and everybody's in their caps and gowns. Side note, has anybody ever thought about how ironic it is that we celebrate the acquisition of knowledge by dressing up like fools, right? I mean, is there any more ridiculous outfit that we wear than a cap and gown? So here's Oscar Thompson amidst all these people with their little mortarboards and their flowing robes or whatever, and and he feels a tap on his shoulder. He turns around, and there's that young man, and there's an older guy that looks sort of like him, and the guy says... Hey, Dr. Thompson, I wanted you to meet my dad. He came to see me graduate. And the three of them just shared a big group hug right there. And there's so many more stories like that in that book. If you want to pick a copy up, it would really encourage you. But what I want to show you is the method that he showed them. So what we're going to do is we're going to draw seven concentric circles. It's going to look like a target, right, with seven little rings down to that last one. If you want to take notes, in fact, I highly encourage you to draw this with me. You can flip over your bulletin. There's a little blank space for, for there exactly for that, okay? So right in the middle of your page, write a small circle, or write, draw a small circle. And in that small circle, write the word self. We need to pray for ourselves. We need to pray that God would equip us and get us ready and make us the kind of people we need to be to influence others towards Him. If you know that you don't have a lot of scriptural knowledge or you don't know what to say in situations like that, pray that God would teach you. If you know you need humility, by the way, you need humility. I'm your pastor. I'm telling you, you need to be more humble. If you know you need more boldness, most of you do. Some of you need to kind of dial back the boldness a little. I'm just telling you. But whatever you need, ask God for it in order to be the kind of witness that you should be. The next circle out, write the words, immediate family. Here's where you're going to write down the names of anybody in your immediate family who you're not sure or you know for sure they're not in the family of God. I'm talking about parents, siblings, kids if you have them, spouse if you're married. The next circle, the third circle, write the word relatives. Here's where you list anybody in your extended family who is lost. Cousins, aunts and uncles, in-laws, outlaws, right? Next circle, circle four, draw that fourth circle and, and, and write, the words, write the word friends. Listen, if you don't have any friends who are lost, pray that God would give you some. And if you do, then write their names there. 
You may have friends that you grew up with and you don't have contact with them anymore, but last time you checked, they weren't following Christ. They didn't have a relationship with Him. Write their names down there. Pray for them. In the fifth circle, draw that fifth circle around all those and and write the word neighbors. Here's where you're going to pray for the people who live near you, who don't know Christ as far as you know. This is where you want to list your coworkers. If you're in school, the people in your class. If you think they don't know Christ, if you suspect they don't know Christ, if they are religious but they don't seem to have the peace of God in their lives, the joy that Christ brings, pray for them. In the sixth circle, write the word acquaintances. If you're bad at spelling, write people I know. There's no shame in it. You don't have to pass a spelling test to get into heaven. But here's where you're going to list the people who Maybe they're not close to you, but you encounter them on at least a semi-weekly basis. This is the person who cuts your hair. This is the, the, the person who cleans your teeth when you go to the dentist. This is the, the girl who makes your latte when you go to the coffee shop. This is the waitress at your favorite restaurant. This is your kid's soccer coach. This is your karate teacher. This is whoever. People you don't necessarily know well, but you encounter them on a regular basis. And you may not know their names yet. We're going to get to that. So for now, just write, a, write down the way you know them, okay? Put their names in that sixth circle. In the seventh circle, write Person X. Person X is Thompson's category for strangers, people we haven't met yet. When you pray for Person X, you're praying, Lord, get me ready for those opportunities I'm going to have someday where I meet someone And I have an opportunity to influence them a little bit closer to Christ in some way. Lord, get my heart ready for those unexpected opportunities. So what do we do with these circles? I know you need to take this home, maybe write it on a bigger sheet of paper and write all those names out. Take the time to do that. This is really key. So what do we do with them? Four things. Number one, pray for them daily. And by daily, what I do, this is just me, I pray for a circle a day. So Sundays I pray for myself, Mondays I pray for immediate family, and so forth on down the line. That way every lost person in my life gets prayed for at least once a week. Now you may be going for extra credit, you may pray for all seven circles every day, good on you. But pray for these names daily. Second thing, pray for them by name. Pray for them by name. Now, Does God know who you're talking about when you say, Lord, bless my next door neighbor, the one who mows at 6.30 a.m.? Does God know who you're talking about when you say, God, bless the guy in my office that has the bad breath? Yes, he knows who those people are. He doesn't need for you to find out their name so he knows who they are. He knows already. But if the point of this is that we would become more like God, that we would love people like he loves them, then we need to know these people by name. We need to find out their names. And you may say, well, I'm just not good with names. That's why God gave you pen and paper, okay? Or smartphone or whatever you want to use. You might say, well, I've known them a long time. I'd be embarrassed to ask their name. Get over it. Get over it. There's a period after all three words because it's really emphasized, okay? Go and talk to them. Walk across the street and meet that neighbor. Bring some cookies if you need an icebreaker. Go and talk to that guy in your office. Give him some Tic Tacs, for goodness sakes. Stop praying for Stinky. Pray for him by name, all right? And it's going to bless you. It's going to change you. Number three, pray in an informed way. In other words, 
Pray for what's going on in their lives as best you tell. I'm not asking you to be a busybody. I'm saying when you become aware of something in this person's life, pray about it. Let them know you're praying about it. And you may say, well, what if they don't want me to pray for them? Listen, I know this is just anecdotal evidence, but I'm going to give it anyway. I've got, I've got friends who are atheists who I, mainly call, who I basically only communicate with online because they live at a distance from us. And when I know something's going on in their lives, if, if this friend's dad is in the hospital, if this other friend has a child who is sick or, or, or they've lost their job, I will send them a message and say, listen, I'm praying for you. I'm praying your dad gets healed. I'm praying you find a job soon. I'm praying your child gets well. And not once has any one of them ever said, leave me alone, you superstitious Bible thumper. They may not believe that my prayers do any good, but they know that I'm acting in kindness. They receive it that way. So take a chance and say to your, your unbelieving neighbor, friend, coworker, acquaintance, listen, I'm praying for you. Check up with them later. In fact, in fact, if you feel comfortable doing this, pray with them right then and there. You don't know how powerful it will be for them to hear someone mention them to God in their presence and specifically mention the problem they're going through. And you know what that can do? Someday when that person is at the end of their emotional rope, they just might turn to you because they'll think, I know, I know she cares about me. I know, I know he cares about me. So pray in an informed way. And then finally, pray for salvation. Pray for their salvation. Now, again, God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our suggestions. We're not giving him tips. But I suggest, my recommendation is, instead of simply praying, Lord, please save my cousin and her two kids, which is better than not praying at all, why not pray something more like this? Lord, I know my cousin's miserable. Every time I see her, I can tell she is just not doing well. Please help her to see that you love her. Help her to see that these things she tries, I mean, the, the parties, the, the relationships, none of those things are working for her. Help her to get, just get tired of, of banging her head against the wall and, and, and turn to you. Lord, she won't listen to me, so I pray that you would send someone who she will listen to, maybe somebody her own age, maybe somebody at work, maybe, maybe just someone she respects, someone to share your love with her. And I pray I pray that she would be saved. And Lord, if there's anything I can do to help her show me what it is. And you see what happens when you do that. It's not that God treats her any differently, but you've now entered into that person's experience. You're bearing her burdens alongside of her. And now instead of sitting back, very pridefully judging your lost cousin and saying, well, if she wasn't drunk all the time, if she wasn't running around with a different man I saw her with every time, then maybe her life would be straight instead of having that kind of pharisaical attitude, which comes so easily to us religious folks. Instead, you're saying, I hurt for you. I know life is not easy for you. The answer's out there. It's not me, but it's him. And I'm praying that you find him. I'm praying that someday when Jesus announces that another soul has come into the kingdom and there are shouts of joy and there's laughter and there's high fives. Yes, I believe angels high five. I think they probably dab each other up. I don't know what they do, but when there's songs of joy in the presence of God, someday it's going to be for that cousin, for that neighbor, for that coworker, for that friend, for that sibling. Because one day it was for you. 
Think about that for a minute. One day, the party they held in the presence of God was for you. You're the one they were rejoicing for. You're the one they were weeping tears of joy for. Think about that song that Robert sang just before we started. Let us love anyone that he loves. Let us love anyone that he loves. There's such a huge portion of our world that doesn't know that's how God operates. Let us love anyone he loves. Will you pray? Will you pray for the lost? Will you commit to do that this year? Because I think it will change you forever if you do.